You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Annalie Rufus is the author of Stuck, Why We Can't or Won't Move On and Party of One, A Loner's Manifesto. With Kristen Lawson, she wrote The Scavenger's Manifesto. Thank you for joining me, Annalie. Happy to be here. And Kristen. Great to be here. In your introduction, one of the things that you say is that from the beginning, the practice of scavenging has been damned in the Bible from the (laughs) get-go. That is true. It actually even predates the Bible. When when humans graduated from being hunter-gatherers to being civilized, settled people in cities, there was sort of a drive to stop acting like the way we used to act. And when you think of hunter-gatherers, the gathering half of that is scavenging. So, And the way in which to shed your primitive being and to become a civilized man was to stop gathering, i.e. stop scavenging and become a farmer or an artisan so that people began to look down on scavengers, even, you know, 5,000, 6,000 B.C. And then it's in the Bible, it's in Leviticus, where there's all this bad-mouthing of the scavenging animals, thou shalt not eat or touch or even be near something that scavenges in the wild. And and that has carried through till today, and that's why so many people now are, are just ashamed to even admit that they scavenge, which we define as any legal means of acquiring things without paying full price, from thrift shopping, to yard sailing, to any kind of bargain hunting. Now, let's talk about the philosophy of scavenging, which I think is really interesting. Uh, Could you talk about some of the misconceptions of of scavenging, Uh, you know, some of the the myths around it? Well, the first thing that people think of is dumpster diving. And that, though it isn't a a form of scavenging, it isn't the only form of scavenging. That's at the extreme end. And we are trying to broaden the definition to include every type of imaginable way of acquiring things without buying them new in a store. It includes swapping, bartering, free cycling. And there are so many different ways of alternate ways of consumption today that there's really almost no reason to walk into the retail store anymore. But, you know, the misconceptions are you're gross, you're dirty, you're poor, you're desperate, you're crazy. You know, when many of the scavengers we meet are the most middle-class people you could ever see. Yesterday we met a scavenger who was very middle-class looking, wearing a nice nice black leather jacket. And she told us that she had been walking down the street in San Francisco the day before, had seen all this cool stuff out on the curb, was about to go look through it and scavenge some when a, what was it, a jaguar pulled up. And the person got out of the Jaguar and took it. And I, she said, I was going to go up to that person and say, you're rich. Why are you scavenging? And I said, well, they got rich by scavenging. That's how they save their money. Now, one of the things I think that was interesting was that you kind of described scavenging in a way as realizing your individualism. For us, we realized actually it was a personality trait that we were born with. A few years ago, we knew we were strange and different people. We couldn't figure out the manner in which we were different from everyone else that we knew. And we sat down and we thought, what is it? What is that mysterious attribute that we have that differentiates us from all our friends? And it dawned on us, like, we scavenge stuff. That's it. That's what makes us unique. We probably realized it the third or fourth time we went to a regular restaurant with people and looked at the menu and both of our eyes popped open like the size of the the saucers you know what it 
how can this ravioli be $24? And no one else seems to have that problem. To us, you know, it's just reflexive to think, how can I get a good deal? How can I get this for free? How can I get this? And that's not a bad thing. We have both always been, we as children, we didn't know each other, of course, but we were always the kids that picked up the pennies off the street. And we grew up being that, that bargain hunter. So we still are, but we realize most people aren't in this culture. You know, it's a very consumer-driven culture, and we are, we have that, as Chris says, that gene, that inborn thing where we are always hunting for the deal, and if something is, it's retail price, and it's not a bargain, or it's not free, we think there's something wrong with this. Why would we, what fool would do this? In the book, we start at the very beginning, we start with animals who are scavengers, and I go to great lengths to show that human beings, who are, after all, a form of animal, are a type of animal that's called this omnivore scavenger, like a chimpanzee or closest relatives. They'll eat anything. They'll eat an ant, they'll eat a corpse, they'll eat a leaf, they'll eat a fruit. And humans are the same way. And chimpanzees are biologically classified as scavengers. And if you were to look at Homo sapiens sapiens, our species, we are scavengers. We are have evolved to be scavengers. It's just that people Everyone else, aside from us and those people who still identify as scavengers, have denied their true nature. It's like saying we're bipedal, we walk on our feet, we're sexual mammals, we, you know, copulate to make babies. There's certain things that are just genetically the way human beings are. And one of them is scavengers and that most people have forgotten their natural roots. Or buried them in their shame and fear. One of the things you talk about when you're talking about the evolution of scavenging is kind of the the negative associations, and, and you talk about uh, parasites and predators, and could you talk about how this gets all confused? Well, the strange thing is, if you actually go back to Darwin, he what he showed in Origin of Species is not simply that all animals are related to each other, but the more there was a more important truth in that book that totally changed evolution, excuse me, all of biology, in fact, was that no animal or species is better, quote-unquote, than any other species, and that it's a mistake to think that evolution is a progression forward through time, and that everything's getting better and better. That was sort of the a Victorian notion of history, and he realized that actually you're just adapting to circumstances, and sometimes things get different in a way that isn't necessarily better. So that this whole a notion that predators are superior to scavengers in some mysterious moral ways like he realized actually predators aren't better than scavengers and grazers or you know herbivores aren't better than scavengers it's just a different manner of being and we've had this deep-seated prejudice that we've projected onto these animals we somehow think a lion is a proud good animal but a jackal is a horrible dirty animal what's the difference they're both just animals and they just evolved to be different ways and he proved biologically that one actually isn't quote-unquote better than the other but if you look at what different animals do they all serve their purpose including scavenger animals the hyena is eating the corpses, the roadkill, the things that have been killed by other creatures. If they didn't do that, the world would be littered with corpses that were spreading disease. So we think of scavengers, human and animal, as nature's cleanup crew. And if it wasn't for human scavengers, then the, you know, the landfills would be even bigger than they are. And that, that uh, island of plastic garbage floating in the South Pacific would be even bigger than it is now, which is the size of Texas. And I think that's big enough. <laughs> You know, there's two very tiny animals that are scavengers. One is the earthworm, and the other is the termite. And you think, oh, earthworms and termites, they're both forms of scavengers. Termite is a unique scavenger. It's the only scavenger that will eat discarded wood. And you know, a termite looks at a house and thinks it's just a big pile of discarded wood. 
But biologists have realized that if it wasn't for termites, the earth would be dead because no other species can take all the organic material that goes into a tree and convert it back into organic material in the ecosystem. And if it had not been for termites, the entire planet would be covered with dead uh, fossilized trees and there'd be no other life left. It was termites that liberated that organic material back into the ecosystem. And the same thing with earthworms, all the dead and you know dying vegetative matter, earthworms convert that into what we call topsoil. The entire planet is covered with earthworm poop which that was Darwin's last book. He wrote that, you know, he realized that earthworms completely transformed the planet. So it was earthworms and termites, which makes Earth livable as a, as a planet. So hooray for scavengers. Scavengers save the world once again. <laughs> now, you talk about the essential difference between the scavenging mindset and the consumer mindset. And I really like this difference. It's between want, get, and get, want. Yeah, you know, the the whole mindset of consumerism is, I want it, I get it, I get it now, I get it fast. That's all about control and controlling your environment. That's that's fine for what it is, but scavenging means trading that control of instant gratification to the wild adventure of not knowing what you're going to get, when you're going to get it, where you're going to get it, or even really if you're going to get it. Um, yes, it means you have to be able to handle uncertainty, uh, but it means once you get it, then you want it. And that's so exciting because you learn to appreciate things. Instead of stomping around and being like a spoiled brat and saying, I want this, I want that, you walk down the street and say, as, as I have recently, you happen upon a pile, of, a pile of CDs and there's some Cambodian punk music and you've never, never listened to that before and you've never worn a green crocheted poncho before. That's what you find. That's what you do. And you, you, learn. You, you learn to like it. You learn about it. Scavenging forces you to be creative and resourceful and, and to learn. Uh, could you talk about this idea of finding versus choice? I really like that. You, you, you talked about that in your book. Well, those people who go to the store, they have in mind what they want, and it ceases to be a quest. They think, I want an orange iPod with four gigabytes of memory. And they just go to the shelf, and they pick it up, and then they've gotten what they wanted. And it's immediate satiation of their desire. If you're a scavenger, you don't have a plan ahead of time what you're going to get or even if you're going to get anything at all. So you walk out and you find a glow-in-the-dark toaster shaped like Hello Kitty and you never even heard of such a thing. And you think, wow, but now that I've got one, I really want it. So it becomes like an amazing adventure, whereas a normal shopping experience is, is tedious because it's all planned out ahead of time. I love this word that you come up with, scavenomics. What a, a great idea. Tell me all about scavenomics. Scavenomics is the hidden half of the economic cycle that has been totally ignored by economic theorists for centuries. You know, economics, if you look in the dictionary, it's something that's extracted from natural resources in the earth. It gets manufactured, turned into some product. It gets sold. It gets distributed. Someone takes it home. They use it. They throw it away. That's the end of economics. And economics is a study of what happens in that process. Scavenomics is, wait a minute, after you throw it away, then what happens to it? And it's the hidden half of the economic cycle. And we're starting to realize that without this hidden half, the economic cycle doesn't work at all, because eventually all the raw material will be extracted and there'll be nothing left. And scavenomics is, includes recycling, which you take all the objects and you melt them down and you make new stuff out of it, 
or repurposing, which is you take something that was thrown away and you use it for a different purpose, or what we like to do, just reusing, where something is thrown away and you bring it right back into the economic cycle and you reuse it for the reason it was originally designed. And this is how economies actually survive. It's just that econo economists up till now hadn't realized it, actually. Scavenomics means taking things and immediately reusing them so that they don't have to go through this whole laborious process. Recycling is a very noble idea, but when you, when you say, I'm going to recycle this old bottle or this old can, it has to be transported somewhere. It has to go through some kind of processing to melt it down into raw materials, and then it has to be manufactured, and then it has to be transported back, and then someone has to buy it, and then it has to be discarded again. Scavenging means I go out, I go down the street, I look, and hanging over the edge of a, I'll say it, dumpster, is a Versace suit, which I am currently wearing the top half of. You can't see me, but the label is here. It now, says Versace. It sure and I just bring that right back into the econ economic system. I'm wearing it. And, and that is what scavenging is all about. It's, That's what scavenomics is all about. Yes. What's interesting to me, you talk about the consumption process versus the consumption cycle. I don't know where we say that in the book, but the consumption cycle is everything is constantly being reused. You realize that it, throwing it away is not the end of the road. It's It has to go somewhere, and either it's going to end up in a gigantic landfill and befoul the earth, or you're going to reuse it or repurpose it or recycling it for some good purpose. That's why scavenging is the more efficient way of doing it. You just get it, and you just immediately start using it. Yeah, three, I've actually, the three different things that people do after the end of the economic cycle, which is recycling, repurposing, and reusing, recycling is actually the least efficient, because you have to take that can you know, take it down to the recycling center, crush it down, ship it over to China, smelt it to an aluminum bar, ship it over to B Bolivia, make it into a can, ship it over to New York, get in a truck, drive across the country, put some water in it, drink it, and throw it in the exact same garbage can. And, the, you know, the economic footprint of that can is immense. But if you just simply find something and reuse it, there's no economic footprint at all. So, Well, there's a, a – we – tend to think of this recycling as being natural, but it wasn't always this way. There, there used, we used to have uh, bottles that had to be washed locally, and, and this was uh, the, the whole idea of this kind of recycling uh, was, is very recent. As early as the 60s, it was the soft drink companies that stopped, really stopped the whole... Right. Actually, recycling started in 1968, of all strange years, when the two different major corporations, I forget their names, a glass company and an aluminum company, mm -hmm. decided that they would buy back the raw materials, not from wholesalers, but from the general public, which was a revolutionary idea at the time. And it started an entire industry, and other companies began to do the same thing. One of the things you talk about is cognitive dissonance and recycling. Well, we have a whole thing there where we realize that if everybody follows our recommendation and becomes a scavenger, then there'll be nothing left to scavenge. A, because no one's throwing anything in any way anymore, and, other, and B, because there's so much competition. So we kind of, kind of hope that our book fails, actually. Don't <laughs> say that. Um, we just know that scavengers should and probably will always remain a minority. In, in a consumer culture like this, there are people who will never, ever be converted, as it were, um, we know people who say, I, you could not get me to wear a secondhand piece of clothing or eat off of a secondhand you know, utensil. You'd have to shoot me. I mean, we do know people who say that. And, and okay, that's fine for them. Everyone has what I call their ick factor, and they won't go beyond it, and we don't ask anyone to go beyond it. You don't have to do anything gross, dig in a dumpster, whatever, just to prove that you're a cool scavenger. But 
you know, it is nice to know that if you can scavenge in some way, even a small way, you know, and you lower your carbon footprint and save some money, you might as well just, what do we call it, come out of the dumpster and... and <laughs> come out of, instead of coming out of the closet, yeah. come out of the dumpster and admit you're a scavenger. Could you talk a little bit about the, the history of scavenging? I'm talking about the untouchables and, and especially the Jewish idea of gleaning, the proto-scavenging world. It's interesting. That, too, is in the Bible. Um, there's, there's a portion where God uh, dictates to the, to the farmers, always leave a portion that you do not harvest and let the gleaners come and, and take what's left. And this is a, a beautiful idea that you just, you're a wealthy farmer and you know there's poor people out there. Just leave something for them. It's sort of, it envisions scavenging as a social welfare mechanism. It's like, you don't even bother harvesting it. Let the scavengers come and take it. And that way we can keep all the poor people fed. Instead of setting up a complicated bunch of bureaucracy to have welfare, just let them harvest the grain themselves. And it's a very, it's a simple but very effective form of early welfare. There's a story in the Bible of Ruth and Naomi where one of them is the mother-in-law and one of them is the, the widow. And she says, I'm going to go be a gleaner. And the mother-in-law says, you won't get anything. And she says, I will, I will. And she goes to the, to the farm. And the farmer sees she's working so hard. And he tells his workmen, just, just stop harvesting right now. Just go away. You know, let her glean. Let her glean more. Let her glean more than anyone. And she does. She does a great job. And everyone's really impressed. This, this humble woman scavenges all kinds of grain and she brings it home and she says look how much i got we should explain that gleaning you know people in santa cruz might know is getting leftover farm produce that was left in the fields and there are organizations in the united states today that call themselves gleaning organizations the saint andrew is one of the organizations that do that they collect from farms all over the country in massive massive quantities they send their volunteer gleaners out to the farms and they collect and they distribute to the needy but of course, in Scavenger's Manifesto, we talk about urban, what do we call it, urban gleaning, where you just are walking down the street and someone's fruit tree is growing over the fence. Well, that's on public property, the branches, or something's growing in a parking lot. We always bring plastic bags in the fruit season and we get apricots and plums and apples. I mean, it is astounding how much fruit, herbs, vegetables are just waiting for you to take them. Uh as my mother used to have apricot trees where she'd throw away the apricots because, and, and I just think, what I wouldn't even think then, what a, what a waste. It'd be better if somebody would come out. And, yeah, 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 there's an organization called Fallen Fruit that's based in Los Angeles, and I hope other groups spring up like that where they, they uh, organize tours, uh, urban gleaning tours of Los Angeles. Let's pick the loquats, let's pick the apricots. And then they have sessions where everybody comes to the park and makes jam out of the, so they don't throw them out like your mom. We have a concept in the book we call being a scavengee, where you supply material for other people to scavenge. And someone in our neighborhood has a huge uh, persimmon tree. And every year, they get 200 pounds of persimmons. They can't even use them all. Instead of throwing away like your mom, they put them out for the neighbors to pick. So, Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about scavenger style, because that's kind of new and interesting. And uh, obviously, she's wearing it. <laughs> Tell me about scavenger style. Scavenger style is... They cannot read you, you know? When you're just a regular consumer, you think, I know what my style is. I want to look punk. I want to look goth. I want to look vintage. Okay, I'm going to completely control that. I know what I'm going to get. Scavenge style means I am going to wear whatever I find, and it's going to be me, but you can't look at me and think, oh, that person is this, that, or this. So scavenge style started 
oh, long time ago, people used to be all dressed up all the time. If you look at actual photographs of American cities in the 40s, you'll think everyone's so dressed up. They're wearing suits, they're wearing hats, they're wearing dresses, they're wearing high heels. In the late 40s, a group of people now known as the Beats, the Beat Generation, you know, started doing something really radical. And that radical thing was they were wearing work clothes and clothes from thrift stores and urban uh, army surplus stores. And that was radical. That was so freaky to people. Look, they're wearing secondhand clothes. Well, the beat writers, Jack Kerouac and Ellen Ginsberg and his friends, they did that because they did. They wanted to be in your face about it. Look, there are other other ways of dressing. They wanted to look like they were in solidarity with the with the lower classes. Over the generations, different groups of people have adopted the whole idea of scavenge style, secondhand, secondhand, for different reasons. They did it because they wanted to look like, you know, low-class workers. The hippies did it because they, it was an art form to them. This is, the world is a stage and I'm just going to wear whatever I find and, and everything is, is theater. The punks did it as a way to say, screw you, screw me, I'm ugly, you know, life is screwed and and this is such a wasteful society. We are your discards. You know, we all have our reasons for doing it. But now, scavenge style is as diverse as we are. You, you can just, anything you wear that you find is your own form of scavenge style. What happened, of course, starting actually in the mid-70s, is that the corporations realized this is where fashions come from. It, it originates a scavenge style, and then it becomes mainstream. So the corporations started co-opting it. So they began to sell pre-distressed jeans. You wouldn't get them out of a dumpster if you had the cooties about the dumpster. You could go to the supermarket and buy a jean that looked like it came out of the dumpster. And so now high fashion is made to look like scavenged fashion on purpose. Yeah, the famous the famous case was the film Annie Hall, where Diane Keaton's character claims to be wearing scavenge style. She's wearing the old 30s uh, baggy trousers and the vest and the tie, and that's they talk about that. There was, she got it from her grandmother. She got the old pants. And so America thought, they took this to heart. Oh, this is wonderful. We want to do this. America wanted that look and ran to the thrift stores. Well, the fact is, the clothes for that film, for that character, were designed by one of the top designers of, of the era. They, they, were, they were not off the thrift shop rack. And so you, people went to the thrift stores. They couldn't find that stuff. So the, the clothing, new clothing manufacturers began to manufacture Annie Hall styles from factories to make it look like scavenge style. And soon everyone in America was wearing scavenge style without even realizing it. Fake scavenge style. <laughs> <laughs> could, could you tell me, there's a really interesting episode uh, about the diggers. Tell me about the diggers. The Diggers were a hippie sort of commune revolutionary group in the mid-60s. I think they started in San Francisco. And they had what we now would think of as called a free store, which is incomprehensible in the modern terms. They set up stores where everything in the store was free. It was basically like a thrift store with no price tags. And this was part of a revolutionary philosophy that they had. The diggers were into everything being free. They wanted the word free to come before virtually every noun. Free healthcare, free love, free housing, and free stores. And they, they, their whole their saying was, we're hip to property, meaning, you know, property sucks. Everything should be free. Let's all share. This was a really interesting idea course it was and free stores popped up in san francisco new york los angeles and people did go and and just take what they wanted but of course people are people i shouldn't say that people are people and people abuse the free stores people would come and clean out the free stores and then resell the stuff and the diggers were just distraught over this um so that movement didn't really work i think the key element is 
if everything in the world is free and shared, certain people, the mean people, are going to come and beat you up and take your stuff. The other problem is you can't have an economic anarchy within a structured economic system so that if most stuff costs money but some stuff is free, people will simply run in, take all the stuff that's free, and then sell it in the regular economic system, which makes it very difficult to have the sort of economic anarchy that the diggers envisioned as a sort of subset of a normal economy. You have to like have an island somewhere in a whole new society where everything's free. It's the only way it's going to possibly work. This being the case, this is why scavengers now must remain a minority, because we still have to have regular consumers buying stuff and throwing stuff out. So, hate to say it, we can get it. <laughs> now, you talk about the kinds uh, of scavengers, and I think this is very interesting. You have a whole kind of grid. So, And I love this idea of, you know, I never even thought about this, but I, though I've seen these guys, that the CEO with a metal detector oh, is yeah. a scavenger. And I never, you know, that never really... It, it's hard to make that equation between that guy and the and the student hanging over the edge of the dumpster, you know, getting a discarded pen. So let's talk about the retail uh, scavengers. Well, we broadened the definition of scavenging in the book to include any mechanism to acquire stuff without paying full price for it new in a store. So you can still go scavenging within a retail environment. So if you go into Macy's, a normal consumer will just buy whatever they want off the rack, but a scavenger will scavenge for the best deal within that particular environment. The sale rack, the leftover thing, the end of the run clothing. And so there's many different ways to do scavenging and still be in a retail store. I used to get a $25 gift certificate to Macy's when I worked for a newspaper in San Francisco. And I would think, what am I going to do in Macy's? I don't shop at stores like that. So I'd always go there and search around for the absolute best deals in the store. And one time I got like 10 bras. I mean, just I would find the deals or go down to the cosmetic area when they were doing the buy a couple of Lancome things and get a whole bag of freebies. I, that's what I would do with my gifts. That is urban. That is retail scavenging. But even going to thrift stores is retail scavenging because they are stores. They look like stores. They have clerks. They have music playing. They have racks. They have price tags. But you are getting a brand name item for a fraction of what it would cost you down the street. And I don't know if they have those around here, but up in the normal part of the Bay Area, Northern Bay Area, they have discount grocery stores where they have normal products you've heard of. It's just some bizarre flavor that didn't work out, or they changed the label, or they made Betty Crocker look different on the box or something. And they have all these sort of leftover foods in boxes that they can't sell in a regular store. They end up at these discount stores for like 80, 90% off the normal price. So that's where we go. Yeah, in the discount groceries of the world, you can get organic, uh, fair trade, vegetarian, vegan, so much delicious things for an incredible fraction of the price. Also... Another place that many people feel they're too high and mighty to go into is the 99-cent store. Well, 99-cent stores, everything in there is 99 cents. That is a good price, and a lot of those stores now sell dairy and frozen food. And for your, some of your staples, why not? So there's all different sorts of retail scavenging. Yard sales and flea markets, too. We call yard sales the gate the gateway form of scavenging because they <laughs> it's it's the way to ease into it if you oh i'm a little scared what is this scavenging i don't want to dig through a dumpster you don't have to a yard sale is being given by your neighbor or someone who looks like your neighbor and a lot of what scares people with with scavenging is the idea of provenance where did this item come from i found it in the street what if someone died holding it what if there's blood on it what if a crazy person did something weird to it 
yard sale, you can ask the person, where did this come from? Oh, it was a wedding present. You didn't, oh, okay. It makes it very comfortable. So yeah, people are scared off by not knowing who the previous owner was. Sometimes even, even if they aren't afraid of the germs, they're afraid of the vibe. But if you can see the previous owner standing right there, and if you know him, if he lives next door to you, then the, all the objections to owning something used are gone away. That's why we recommend garage sales as the first way to dip your toe into scavenging. They're also great for people with, with kids, especially small kids, because raising kids is very, very expensive, and babies are very expensive, and the baby does not know that that toy was played with by someone else. <laughs> Now, let's talk about uh, urban scavengers. Uh, this is where you we get into the dumpster divers. But this is something I've, I've never – didn't think about was the free box forager. Well, in Berkeley in particular, there's an old hippie tradition left over from the 60s of free boxes. And it used to be that it, on nearly every corner – the neighbors would just have set up a big cardboard box and instead of throwing out anything useful, they just put it in the box and write free on the box and then all the runaways and hippies from the neighborhood would come root around and reuse it. And, you know, the eras changed, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and most of the free boxes are gone. But now people have sort of an individual free box mentality where each individual household instead of throwing away something useful like they have some broken blender or some little thing wrong with it, They'll just put it in front of their house and say free. Not every city has this tradition, but Berkeley does. So that if you walk around, you know, Berkeley and parts of Oakland, there will be free boxes in many neighborhoods. Bolinas has a permanent, it's not even a free box, it's like a free house. It's like a shed full of free stuff. I want to go there someday. You know, there's the <laughs> towns where people put stuff out on the curb and the towns where they don't. You know, I think Santa Cruz is one where they do. And, and San Francisco is one where they do. It's just, so I'm always surprised when... We went to Denver, you know, on a vacation. It was like, where's the stuff? It was freaking me out. People don't put stuff out. It's mostly cities that have a 60s mindset, and they haven't quite gotten rid of that, that do the free boxes. And we're so glad. <laughs> uh, you also mentioned something, I, I, and I like this term, I, and this might have described me uh, now and again, a library, a lizard. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, if you are someone who wants to be entertained, you can scavenge your entertainment by going to the library and you can hang out there check out books check out movies take advantage of all the free books and we know we had a category in a book called the library lizard who scavenges their entertainment that way because entertainment is really expensive and these days when people are worried about money you don't have to sit in the dark all the time you know you really can get entertainment you don't have to pay for it you can either check out dvds as we do every day i did that before coming here um or you can find lectures that are happening at a nearby university for free. There's some more entertainment. Yeah, so we, we've actually once got a gift certificate. Someone gave us to Blockbuster Video, and we went in there, and we thought, who watches these horrible movies? It's supposed to be like a big video store. Everything was a horror film or some science fiction film that was never released in the theaters or some crazy movie. It's like, yuck. When you go to the library, they actually have a better and bigger selection of movies, and they're free. And we let our Blockbuster coupon expire without even using it because we couldn't even find anything to check out. And now let's talk uh, about the uh, the social scavengers. And there's a couple of, of great terms in here, free cycler and freegans. I hear a lot about freegans. Freegans are, they're doing what they do mostly for political reasons. They are a group of people, American subculture, that, well, international subculture, that are committed to not spending a dime on anything, anything. And that's very interesting. It's also very hard. 
Um, so you kind of have to hand it to them, and they help each other out. Yeah, they're getting they're sort of the latest fad to talk about them in a lot of the media shows. The freegans, the freegans, and the reason the media is focusing on them is because they're the most extreme. They'll get stuff out of dumpsters. They won't spend any food, and. Our book is more for the people who are just being curious about scavenging. It's like we talk about freegans in there, but you know, a freegan already knows about scavenging. So what we wrote in our book is like if you just want to get involved in scavenging or curious about it, this is the way to get started. But the free cyclers um, are exactly what you're talking about. Um, they're a kind of social scavenger where, well, the word free cycler is now just a generic word that everyone uses, but it comes from an actual organization, which is freecycle.org, a website where you join up for free, and you basically post things that you want to give away, and fellow members claim them and then come and pick them up. It's this incredible give-and-get network, one of many. There's other ones called CurbCycle, Sharing is Giving, and freecycle.org has something like 6.5 million members in 80 countries around the world. It's astounding, and it's local. So you join your local one, and someone's posting something, they're two blocks away, you go get it. It's a great, great thing. You don't have to spend a dime. It's basically using the internet as a giant free box. <laughs> I like that idea. Um, tell us uh, about the specialty scavengers. And uh, I love some of these. This It's a really great way to expand the idea and make it seem a lot more appealing, as you say, than just dumpster diving, you know, the metal detector, the beachcomber, the treasure hunter, prospector. Yeah. In, the, in the old days, there was, you know, the Indiana Jones type character, the, the gold miner, these people who had adventure in mind and they wanted to go out searching for treasure. And in the modern world, you know, you can't find treasure like that anymore. It's very, very difficult unless you devote your whole life to it. So th these specialty scavengers are people who want to reclaim this sense of adventure. And when you get a metal detector and you go out on the beach or go to some old amusement park and you put it down there and it goes beep and you just find, you know, a nickel from 1937, you go, wow, this nickel's been here from 1937. You know, and it's not a crystal skull and it's not an outer space, you know, artifact. But it's that thrill, even from something really, really small. And so we actually love that. That's one of the reasons I love to go metal detecting is I don't want to find money. I just want to find stuff that's old. Yeah, the, this is a paved overworld, and we've we've pretty much gotten rid of all these exciting things like adventure and surprise, because adventure and surprise can be dangerous and unpleasant, but there's a good side where they're raw and exciting, and what opportunities do we have for that anymore, really, in our daily lives? Not much. So by scavenging, you're reintroducing these things, and that is why you do. There are still people who metal detect on the beach, and that little beep, I cannot tell you, the feeling that little beep gives you, your heart just races. And some, some people go out to do metal detecting and looking for actual treasure, like an actual abandoned gold mine. We're not quite that dedicated. Just walking on the beach is enough. But, you know, I met someone over the weekend who said he was going to go out to the gold country with a friend and do some claim jumping. Um, they were really going to go out to old areas where, I guess, gold was found during the gold rush, and now these guys are short of money. They're just going to go out there with a specialized kind of metal detector that finds pockets of gold under the under the surface and what i like to do is something is called urban archaeology where for, like, for example recently i was reading about the tent cities that people lived in after the 1906 earthquake and most people houses were burned down in san francisco and so they built tents in various city parks or just abandoned areas and i thought where were those tent cities i wonder if they've all been 
built over. So I found a very old map that showed where the tent cities were in 1906. And I compared it to a modern map of San Francisco. And there was one little corner of a park in San Francisco that was still a park. I thought, I wonder if there's any artifacts from that era. So we took our metal detector. We went to the park. And, you know, I did it around for about, about five minutes. I went beep. And I found a tent stake that was for holding down the corner of the tent. And I went, wow. And I look at the picture of the old tents. I go, well, I'm maybe about eight feet in this direction. There should be another one. And I went, beep. And I found all four tent stakes. And we sketched out where this tent used to be. I mean, we, and we found a little bit of rope holding up the tent. And, you know, it wasn't worth anything, quote unquote. But uh, suddenly I was, you know, living in 1906. And it was a fan, you know, it was my version of being Indiana Jones. Oh, that sounds pretty thrilling to tell the <laughs> truth. <laughs> yeah, it was great. A lot of people, you know, in our culture, what is it? What is an exciting day for them? A, a day at the mall, a day shopping, and that's fine. I guess, I guess that's fine. But we just want to kind of switch things around and take away all the control, so that by scavenging, you just can you handle uncertainty? That's the question. <laughs> now, uh, if you're going to be a scavenger, you need there's a certain skill set that goes with being a scavenger, isn't there? Oh yeah. So tell me about the scavenging skills. Rule number one, got to use your eyes, so you need to be vigilant. Look at the ground, because the simple arithmetic, the more you see, the more you get. Um, then you have to be tolerant, which means, you know, be open-minded to what you find, because maybe you can use this, maybe not in the way that it was originally used. Maybe you're finding sports trophies. People always throw those away. What can I do with a sports trophy? Well, you can bolt it to the wall horizontally and make it into a coat hook. Um, so being tolerant and open-minded is, is the second rule. Um, and basically, it's never turning off your eyes and your mind to anything that might be visible or useful to you. you know, after you get being a scavenger for a while, you get a second sight. You can sort of recognize that something's in the dis- – you don't even know what it is yet. There's something out of place. It's like, is that – what is that? And you get close. You go, oh, that's a shirt in a buck. What's that doing over there? And most people would walk right by it and not even notice it. So when you're a scavenger, you develop sort of an inner third sense. And you see stores that the, the typical consumer doesn't see. You see the 99-cent store. You see the store that's closing down and has a big sale sign in the window. You just keep your eyes open. That's rule number one. And, and you talked, too, about something I really like, topsy-turvy aesthetics. Tell us what we said. <laughs> <laughs> what did we say about topsy-turvy aesthetics? Well, to, to look at something that might, might otherwise seem ugly and out of fashion. Oh, but oh so, I see what you mean, yeah. yeah. Because aesthetics are such – it's just a matter of taste. And so many times – my favorite, favorite thing to scavenge is art, because how did it get here? Why would someone discard a piece of art? Automatically, you feel like a rescuer. You know, I'm Jesus. I'm saving this art from, you know, the dumpster where it was going to end up. And you have to, you have to adopt it to your heart. You know, this is a watercolor, a half-finished paint-by-numbers of a matador, which is what I currently have hanging in our bathroom at home. I couldn't just leave that there. Someone got halfway through painting a matador by numbers. I mean, why? Why did they start it and why did they stop it? And this is my topsy-turvy aesthetics. I find it, to me, it is beautiful. Why? It has a story. I don't know the whole story, but it is beautiful. We also, we end up valuing things more the less we spend on it. Most people, they have something called conspicuous consumption. They buy something not because it's necessarily good or because they like it, but because it looks fancy. I'm wearing a Rolex watch, and it cost me $4,700.86. 
And like, it doesn't keep any better time than a little $29 Timex watch. They're just trying to show off. And with us, it's our topsy-turvy aesthetics is the exact opposite. I'm wearing this crazy shirt covered in pool balls and multicolored. And I'm that wearing an it. awesome shirt. <laughs> I'm wearing it because I got it free. If I had gone to some antique store and bought this shirt for $59, I'd be kind of ashamed of it. It's like, I spent $59 on the shirt. It's like, I'm trying to show off. But I got it for free out of a garbage can, which I did. It's like, whoa, now I really like this shirt. The scavenger is always proud to say, I found it in the street. I got it for 50 cents. You know, I have my... All, most of my jewelry I found it in the street or got it at yard sales for under a dollar and I'm always wearing like well this this Tiffany ring that you also can't see that you have to take on trust you know I found this in the street and I didn't know it was a Tiffany ring I just thought oh it's a kind of silver mesh that's interesting I always find jewelry because I'm always looking down I think because I have such low self-esteem but it helps me because I get stuff but I found I picked it up I saw the little glimmer the big thrill oh there it is and later people said to me oh I know that ring that's a Tiffany ring and it is well but it's very important to me to tell everyone that I found it in the street. Another kind of person who was not a scavenger would say, do you see my ring? It's a Tiffany ring. But, you know, for us with our topsy-turvy aesthetics, the whole point, I wouldn't wear this if I had paid full price for it. I'd be ashamed because I'd paid. When I was, when I was a kid, I had a coin collection. And on a rare occasion, I would actually buy a coin, you know, in a coin store. And I had two different three-cent pieces for a brief period. American made three-cent pieces. One of which I bought in a coin store was in very good condition, and I paid two dollars for it. And then one other one I found with my metal detector, and it was horrible condition. It had been run over by cars, and it was all horrible and rusty and miserable and almost bent in half. And it was worth almost nothing. I loved that ruined-looking three-cent piece ten times more than the brand-new three-cent piece because I had scavenged it, even though. The, the good one that I bought new in the store was theoretically the better of the two. Because scavenging, in, like in that story, it connects you to other people. You know, it, it makes you realize that everything you get, you are inheriting from someone. Unwittingly, they didn't mean to give it to you. They didn't mean to pass it on to you, but you are. So whatever you acquire comes with a history, a legacy that you are now shouldering. Oh, even a dime that you find in the street. Well... Ordinarily, this is just change. You know, if you got it in your in your change at a restaurant, it would be just change. But a dime that you find in the street, you have to think, who dropped it? Where was this dime before? Now, um, tell me about the commandments of of scavenging. Well, we have at the final chapter in our book is what we call the 12 commandments of scavenging, though, of course, we're not really prophets. They're just recommendations to people to have our own ethos. And we realized that... We found them. We exactly. a, Engraved in a car. In a, exactly. In a I found it. Exactly. A metal detected a tablet. Yeah. A gold tablet. <laughs> no, we realized that if you are an op oppressed minority like a scavenger, you are sort of coasting along on the and the philosophy and the and the legal system of the people who are oppressing you. But if you want to break yourself free, you've got to come up with your own lifestyle, your own ethos, and your own morality. So we decided we can't rely on the non-scavengers to tell us how to behave. We have to tell ourselves how to behave and come up with our own, own philosophy. So we had the 12 commandments of scavenging. The first one, of course, is don't steal. Scavenging is not stealing. Scavenging is taking things that nobody else wants. Exactly. There's don't steal, there's don't scam, there's don't mooch, there's don't be a pest, there's don't hoard. There's also an important one is when you come upon a site like a dumpster or a free box, leave it neater or at least as neat as it was when you found it because another big thing in our code of ethics is 
don't ruin it for the rest of us. And if you if you do things like leave a mess behind you, you're just giving us all a bad reputation. Oh, those pigs, scavengers are pigs. If you leave it neat, that's one less reason for people to hate us. Yeah, each scavenger has to personally be responsible to maintain the reputation of all scavengers. Because if there is a garbage can and one scavenger goes in there and roots around and leaves a big mess around the garbage can, everyone's going to think ill of scavengers in general. So, And if you leave a big mess around a free box, the person who put that free box out there might not put out another one because they'll think, oh, these, these jerks, you know, messed up my lawn. So we have a whole long litany of different uh, social s- rules for scavengers to follow in order to set up their new moral system. Don't eat gross things. <laughs> yes. You don't have to eat gross things, and you probably shouldn't eat gross things because it make, could make you sick. People expect us, because we're scavengers, people expect us to be all you know, swashbuckling, dumpster diving, eat things that are turning blue and have fur growing out of them. But no, you, you can't risk your health. I would never ask anyone to risk their health. It's silly. You know, you just scavenging is a good thing and it's a fun thing. It's not like a, a crazy hazing test where you, you want to end up in the hospital. Yeah, we, you know, there are people out there who, who will gladly go into a dumpster and eat food and that's fine. More power to them. But what we're not recommending is that everybody feels the need to go totally to the extreme. You can be a scavenger and be a mild scavenger, a moderate scavenger, and just don't eat gross things if you don't want to eat gross but things. But see, gross, like the topsy-turvy aesthetics, gross is, is a matter of perspective, and, and it's, it's not, there's no, what's gross to me might not be gross to you, but if it is gross to you, don't eat it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with Annalie Rufus and Kristen Larson. Their new book is The Scavenger's Manifesto. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.